check, check. Oh, now we have audio. Sweet. All right, there we go. Technology. Okay, so uh, faith has a starting point. Uh, just like anything has a starting point in our lives, our academic careers, our uh, working careers, our athletic career, uh, they all had starting points. And like that, our faith has a starting point. So what we talked about last week was that we want to hit a reset button on our faith, on the starting point for our faith. And that's why the series is called Starting Point, because we want to hit the reset button. And the reason why is not because uh, all of us in here need to find God again, but maybe in some ways we do, because even as you've been a Christian for six months, six years, or 16 years, that there's times where you actually get into a rut spiritually. There's times where you, you flatline and you, you hit a plateau or uh, the newness wore off, the honeymoon phase wore off of your relationship with God and the relationship with the church or problems happened in your life, circumstances overwhelmed you. And I believe that there is a time when we all need to find this uh, reset button and the, how we reset our apps or we can reset the Nintendo. We want to be able to reset our faith as well because sometimes we find in that process that our faith was built on something that was a little shaky. It was built on something that might have been elementary, um, that when you were younger, it worked out for you. But as you got older and circumstances changed, it became more difficult for you to provide the same weight that you were able to provide when you were younger. And as you got more mature, sometimes people even leave God for that very reason. And it eroded their faith. Their faith deteriorated over time. And maybe that's where you were at. And you actually had to come back to God and get restored at one point in time. Uh, and, and even my own wife actually had to get restored. She left the church. She left God for a year when, before we had gotten married, before we were dating. And, uh, you know, we had known each other for about three years at that point and when she was in the process of her getting restored back to the faith. But we all have a faith framework. We all have a framework that we operate from. There's something that, that built our faith up to where it's at today. And that was before I did my first Bible study uh, with the, the current church that we're here in right now that I did a Bible study on, Mar uh, I'm sorry, March 21st. Uh, I just spaced right now. February, February 19th, February 21st, 1999 was my first Bible study. And that important day was the first day I sat down and actually read the Bible. But that wasn't the beginning of my faith framework. There was faith being built in my life up to that point, even though I was a relatively uh, distant person from the kingdom of God and, and an irreligious person. I didn't go to church weekly. I didn't grow up in a place where they were like, hey, what does um, God think about what you're doing? What does the Bible say about that? That wasn't a common phrase or terminology in my house growing up. So I grew up relatively distant from the kingdom, so to speak. But you know, nevertheless, I prayed growing up. You know, we went to church once a year growing up on Christmas, right? Okay, we're coming up on the holidays. Great opportunity to invite your friends. You know, people like me end up going to church once a year, okay? And I, I became a Christian as a, as a basis on the faith framework that I had. But sometimes that faith framework isn't strong enough to get us through, the, through those circumstances. And once we grew up and we got more mature, the, the reasons and the, uh, the, the deductive reasoning we used when we were younger didn't work when we were older. And the, we might have become a Christian because the Bible said something, but the Bible says it's not an adequate starting point or returning point for many adults. And this is what we talked about last week. This is the, the thing that we went over last week is the Bible says is not an adequate or re, uh, starting or returning point for many adults. 
And this might not be something that describes you right now, but when I study the Bible with people, when I would study the Bible with teens, even if they're raised in Christian households, it didn't necessarily mean because the Bible said something, that meant that they were going to do it. And so last week did a great job helping to support another avenue for that. But if we've based our faith on that up to this point, sometimes we could have difficulty trying to implement or follow through on the things that we believe and the things that we're trying to understand uh, that God is doing in our life. In fact, we don't believe that the Bible says was ever intended as the starting point for the Christian faith. And so, and, and it really wasn't. It, it, was not an, it was not the starting point. You know, when people were getting converted in the first century, they weren't like, you know what the Bible says? Because the Bible wasn't around yet. The Bible hadn't been compiled yet in the first few years of Christianity. And, and even in the, in the book of Acts, as we read it, you know, they're converting people and they, they, the scripture was on their heart. They knew the Old Testament. They didn't even have the New Testament writings at that point. So the Bible says doesn't work very well. It might work when you're a little kid, but as you get older, it doesn't hold a lot of weight. The Bible is an amazing document. It's a living document that's, that's made of 66 different books written by 40 authors over a huge period of time from different areas. So the Bible is really a library. It's not a single book. And so saying the Bible says doesn't really mean that much. It's more important. What did Jesus say? And why, why should we believe that? And so this is a great question that we're going to be looking at over the, the course of the series is, who is Jesus? Okay, now Jesus might have believed in Adam and Eve or believed in, in the ark, okay? But me starting out from that starting point and saying, what do you believe about Genesis chapter 1? That is not as important as who do you think that Jesus really is? And so I hope I'm not giving too much away by telling you this of what's going to happen in the rest of the series. But this is the most important thing that we can start our faith from is what do we believe about who Jesus is, why he was here, and what happened on the third day in that tomb? Those questions are an amazing starting point, and that's what we're going to be attacking. And so if you missed week one, you guys can go back and look at lighthousecoc.com. I really want to encourage you guys to do that. In fact, uh, this lesson that I'm doing right now, the morning service didn't use this lesson this morning because we had a special guest speaker. So uh, if there's someone else in our ministry that wasn't able to be here tonight or, or, and they went in the morning this morning, they could still go back and hear this message tonight at lighthousecoc.com. And so what we're going to be talking about tonight is this word that we all love. It's this word sin. We're going to be doing the sin study here tonight. Okay, isn't that great? That's exactly what you guys wanted to come to church to hear. Now, this word sin is is really uh, different because it's not a word that we like to use much. Now, we do use it in the church maybe more frequently than other people do, even maybe in Christian culture, but uh, this is still not a word that we use that frequently. When you get pulled over by a police officer, he's not like, listen, I, I saw you were sinning, so I pulled you over, and I'm going to be giving you a sin citation. You know, he, he doesn't say that. When you get pulled into the office by your boss because he noticed some conduct that needed uh, some work and he wanted to talk to you about something, he's like, you know, Chris, I've really been seeing a lot of sins in your character. You know, he doesn't pull out that word sin, does he? We don't talk about it. Even with our parents and, and uh, our siblings or our kids, we don't use the word sin very often, even though sometimes maybe we would like to. We don't use this word very often. Instead, what's the other word that you guys think we use more often than not? Anybody know? It starts with an M. The word mistake, right? We, we make mistakes, but we don't talk 
in the sense that we've sinned very much. We, we rarely sin, but we make a lot of mistakes, right? And um, when it comes to politicians, you know, you'll see a big politician get up there and the politician has done something super crazy. I don't watch the news much. Anybody here like watching the news a lot, follow politics, okay? Now you watch the news and you'll see some politic, politician get up there with like eight microphones, right? And he's talking about something that happened like over the period of like four years and there was like crazy embezzlement or whatever and he's like, you know, confessing he's made a lot of mistakes in his life. You know, he made a lot of mistakes. You're like, that, that was not a mistake. That was not something that was like a one-time. Mistakes are things you make on your math test. Okay, on your math test, you made a mistake. You unintentionally, you didn't have the knowledge required, you didn't study well enough, and you made a mistake. Or when you're driving and uh, you didn't get your GPS open early enough and you thought you knew where to go, and guess what? You missed the turn, you got on the wrong way, on the freeway. That's a mistake. It was based on in, insufficient knowledge or just an error that you made an error. That's really what a mistake is. And we really like to, we lean towards this word mistake, whether you're the first time here in the church or you've been here for 15 years, I think that we all lean towards this word a lot more than the word sin or that I have sin. And a way I can illustrate that is that uh, if I were to ask right now, just say, you know, don't raise your hands, please. But um, if you were to say, how many of us in here have made some mistakes in our life? Like, obviously, we would all raise our hands. We're like, oh, we've made some mistakes. I could think of some that are blaring in my mind right now, mistakes. Now, if, uh, without context, if I were to in, say the same thing to the same audience right here today, if I was to say, okay, how many of us in here have sinned? Okay, let's go ahead and, ra- and I don't, um, don't raise your hand. But if I was to say, raise your hand, what do you think the first row is going to do? They're going to be like this. Uh, like look behind you, make sure that like everyone else is raising their hand before they do, you know, because, but, but yeah, obviously we are all sinners. But this word mistake is really something from making, having insufficient knowledge, that it's something, but sometimes we make mistakes on purpose. What's a mistake that you make on purpose called? You know, is there something a little bit heavier? What's that called? Because I would think there's got to be a little bit heavier word because when I made an error on my math test, that was a mistake. But is there something different when we had this premeditated mistake? Sometimes we plan our mistakes, and that's what we would call a premeditated mistake. Something that I did on purpose that I planned ahead of time, and I did it over and over and over again for a few years at a time. We make the same mistake over and over. What's that called? Is that the same thing as a mistake? No, it, it's different. That's something that's, that's like deeper rooted and more, uh, more deeply rooted in who we are and what our character is about. And we believe that you can correct a mistake, right? Can you guys correct your mistakes? Like going back and look at your quiz or if you went the wrong way, you can make a decision to turn around and go the other way. You know, you correct mistakes, but it's very difficult or maybe even impossible to correct you, okay? To change fundamentally who you are. Or if you were to to make that mistake over and over and over again reoccurringly, that's something deeper and further reaching than something just called a simple mistake. And so there's a word that we have for that, and that's what I believe that Jesus talked a lot about, is that uh, being a sinner, and that's who we were, is or who we are, is we are sinners. And sinner, by definition, let's call it someone who knows better but does it anyway. 
someone who knows that they should be doing something. It's not based on insufficient knowledge, but they knew they shouldn't be doing it, but they did it anyway. So because we can't fully correct you, that's called being a sinner. But we like to dumb it down and call it, well, I've had a lot of mistakes or I've, I've made a lot of mistakes. And Jesus' purpose of coming here, whatever you might have thought ahead of time, you know, a lot of us have studied the Bible, studied the Bible a lot in our lives, and, and we're very familiar with Jesus. But when we look at what Jesus talks about with grace and light, I don't know what you may have thought about what Jesus said but Jesus addressed sin very directly and he talked about it and he would address these people and that's what we're gonna be looking at here today. Jesus' purpose in talking about sin was restoration, not condemnation. And so his purpose wasn't to condemn us and identify us, hey, see, you sinned, you're the worst, you're a terrible person, you're, you're unfixable, you are a sinner. That wasn't the purpose. The purpose in talking about sin was restoration restoration, not condemnation. And so if Jesus' purpose was restoration, which I believe it was, and I'm, I'm going to talk more about here today, but what sin does is sin breaks apart. If you just made a mistake, you can correct a mistake one time. And if it's just a mistake that Jesus, Jesus didn't just come to correct us of the mistakes that we've made in our life and just say, hey, don't do that, you know, fix it, you know, and auto-fix, find an auto-fix where you can fix yourself and just start to do the right things all the time and be perfect, you know. Jesus came because sin breaks apart relationships. It divides relationships. And whether or not you're a Christian in here today, I believe there's a difference and you'd clearly see a difference because there's a big difference between people who are mistakers and people who are sinners, Mistakers are people who think that, you know, they just made a few mistakes. And sinners are people who are legitimately taking responsibility for what they've done and who they are. And, and they've recognized the gap that it's created in a relationship. And maybe you can see a difference with my kids, for instance. With my kids, um, you know, sometimes I could tell them, you know, hey, you need to say you're sorry. And you know what they're like? Sorry. And they like, don't move their lips or jaw. You know, you ever have seen kids do that? Maybe in a movie if you don't have kids. They, they don't really do it. They, it's like they don't look up. They don't look at They're like, sorry. And I'm like, I didn't hear you. And they're like, sorry. And you know, you're like, okay, if you cannot tell me sorry the way I want to hear sorry, then you're not sorry. You know, and you start getting all upset with them, right? Because they're not actually apologizing, you know? Or, or maybe let's give an example of, of a husband cheating on a wife and he gets caught in an adulterous relationship that he was in that relationship for a few years, okay? And he just gets caught and then he just says, sorry, I'm sorry. Let's go on family vacation now. You know, is it gonna be all good after that? No, definitely not, because you know why? There has to be reconciliation. There has to be some sort of process of reconciliation, and it's not a simple word of, hey, okay, I've made some mistakes, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect either, okay? None of us are perfect, but it's, it's a lot more than just being a mistake, making a mistake you are a sinner. It's taking full responsibility for your sins. So the good thing is this, because what Jesus did is Jesus jacked up the standard. And that's what I'm gonna show you here today in, in some of his teaching. If you haven't read the Bible before, if you guys have been out of the Bible for a little while, or you haven't been having your quiet times and reading the Bible on a daily basis, when you get into what Jesus says, what Jesus says is amazing, but what he does here is he jacks up the standard. So Jesus jacked it up. 
Okay, do you guys like that? Jesus jacked it up. All right, you guys don't like that, but listen, Jesus came for doomed people. That's who Jesus came to look for, is doomed people. Jesus took the standard, and you're going to see he jacked it way up. So whether you're, you've been in here for 15 years, or you've been in here like one day, and this is day one, or uh, you know, maybe you're, you're on a path to getting to know God, and you're somewhere in between, but what Jesus did is Jesus took the standard and he elevated it and he made it seem like, dude, it is like so impossible to make it into heaven because he, he helps us to understand who we really are. That we're not just people that need to say, hey, sorry for the mistakes I made, but it's a recognition of who we are that we're completely lost without Jesus. And that's where we're gonna jump in here to Matthew chapter five, where, where Jesus is talking to a bunch of religious people. The two audiences that Jesus is always addressing is he addresses religious people who think they got it all together and total sinners, okay? Now, he, he has this like wide chasm between people who don't know God, don't know church, don't like church, don't know anything spiritual, okay? They're just out there. They're sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, and then people who are Per, think they're perfect, people who are like praying, going to the synagogue, have scriptures memorized. And so you have religious and irreligious. And he has this conversation and look what he says here in Matthew chapter five. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes, okay, people who like know the word of God, people who know the Old Testament, they have it memorized, and Pharisees, people who are just capable of practicing perfectly. It's like they're paid to be perfect, they're paid to like execute the law like perfectly to the T. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, well, Jesus, that looks like I'm out, okay? Because I, that's kind of like hard. Those are like people who are like up there and people who are like better than me, more spiritual than me or whatever. I mean, it just seems like, whoa, this is tough. And so he goes on to explain himself and he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And we're like, that's it? That's all we gotta do? Oh, sweet. Okay, I'm in. I'm good. Okay, haven't murdered anyone. Any, everybody else here, hopefully you're good. Okay, don't raise your hands. Okay, but hopefully you guys are good and you're like, phew, oh, sweet. Okay, that, that's a relief. Okay, so he says, you shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Dude, that's like, you know, I, yeah, okay, I didn't really, you're like, oh, like, okay, that's a little bit steeper of a standard. So Jesus jacked up the standard. He put the standard to another level. It's just like, don't just not murder someone. Don't even be angry with someone. And so he says, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, then don't just not murder people. You can't even be angry. And so he takes the standard and he puts it up to the next level. And it's like, who here hasn't ever gotten angry with someone else? Nobody. That's like, there's none of us who are capable of saying that we haven't done that, right? For sure, okay. So here he says, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, so most of us in here, we're like, okay, we're good with that, I'm good with that. Hopefully you guys are good with that. Like we, we shouldn't, you know, commit adultery. Don't do that, we're okay, with, we're okay with that. And then he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he's like, you know, don't just not sleep with your neighbor's wife. Don't even take a glance at her with lustful intent or you've already sinned. So you might have thought you were okay. 
but he's like, don't even look at her. So I'm not, I'm not a total sinner. I'm not out there. I'm not out there like partying it up. I'm not out there shooting up heroin or selling needles. But he says, don't even do these things. He takes it to another level. So he takes the standard and he's not just like, don't be this you know, person who's a murderer or sleeping with your neighbor's wife. He's like, he takes it up to another level. Don't even be angry with your brother. Don't even look at a woman with lustful intent, which takes all of us and goes, dude, there is no way that I can get in heaven without Jesus. There's no way for me to be right with God without Jesus. And there's a woman who was actually caught in adultery. And I'm not going to go to the passage for you, but let me tell you about this situation. There's religious people again, okay? And they have this one sinner, this lady. It doesn't actually give a name for her in John chapter eight, but it, it's a religious mob and they grab this lady and she was caught in the act of adultery, a woman caught in the act of adultery. What does that mean to be caught in the act of adultery? It's like someone walked in the room while they were in adultery. There was a woman who wasn't accused of, she wasn't known for, she was caught in the act of adultery. So they grab this woman, bed sheets or whatever was happening, and they take her out and they throw her in front of Jesus. And Jesus is there and Jesus actually is on the ground and he's like writing something on the ground. So he's there like, you know, probably making algorithms or something crazy because he knows everything, you know. And so he's writing and drawing the solar system, or I don't know what he was drawing in the ground. But Jesus is there doing cool stuff with his finger in the ground. And then they throw her before him. And then, and then they say to him, hey, and they did this to test Jesus. They said, you know, this woman was caught in adultery and we're supposed to stone her. That's what the law says. And Jesus says to them, the first of you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. And so whoever's without sin, you can go ahead and throw a stone. But if you sin, you can't. So you can condemn her if you haven't sinned. And so Jesus crouches back down and he starts drawing in the ground again. And then one by one, the oldest started to leave down to the youngest. So first the oldest started to walk away and then finally the youngest walked away. And Jesus stands up and he's like, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she's like, not one. And he says, then neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. And so there was an accuser. There's people who were ready to condemn him and, and this lady. And Jesus didn't say, I condemn you too. I get it. You're right. She has sin. Jesus did not say she's dead because she was caught in the act of adultery. She was definitely guilty. She was a sinner. She did what was wrong. And Jesus was brought with that information. But Jesus did not condemn her Instead of condemning her, he told her just to leave her life of sin. And so you are a sinner. You were caught. Jesus knew she was caught. And it was clear, like, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one that had, had accused her, condemned her to throw a stone? Not one did. So he says, go and sin no more. Leave your life of sin. Turn the other direction. So Jesus is very aware of the sin. He says, you know, basically, hey, it's not that you didn't sin. It's not that you didn't do something wrong. But this woman, I'm, I'm just by the, the circumstance, do you think that she knew she had done something wrong? You think this was going to be like, oh, it was a mistake. And, you know, it was my DNA. It was my upbringing. It was the culture. You know, it was because the economic situation in the world today, you know, had to be pushed into poverty and all this stuff. And so I started doing, you know, whatever. You know, she, there's no excuses. You know, she was caught in the middle of the act of adultery. And she was there standing before Jesus. And Jesus says, 
go and sin no more. And this, this story also uh, is, is just an illustration of Jesus and how he gives forgiveness out. But he gives it to people who have recognized where they're at. And Jesus tells a story so that we can understand this. He goes into different stories and tries to help us. And he, and he comes up with these fictitious stories uh, or, or parables for us to understand this idea and this concept that we are sinners, that we need to take responsibility. And one of that ways, he goes in a very famous passage here at the end of the Beatitudes. He goes into, basically there's, you know, two, there, there, there's a few passages here and, and it goes, basically there's a lost sheep, there's a lost coin, and he goes into, there's, there's two sons. And these sons, one, the younger of the two sons, many of us are familiar with this story called the prodigal son, and he goes to the father and he says, dad, can you just die Okay, I want your money. And so he doesn't say it in those words, but he goes to his father and wants the inheritance from his father. Okay, so in this fictitious story that Jesus tells to illustrate who God is, God is the father in this story. Okay, and, he, and, and this younger son goes to the father and says, God, I mean, father, can you give me my share of the inheritance? Basically, you're as good as dead to me. I want my, my portion of the estate. And basically, that, that means that's something that, like, no ordinary father would actually give out this request. And so Jesus gives the example when he's talking to Pharisees and he's talking to super sinners. And as he talks to them, he gives this fictitious story about a father who does something that no ordinary father would do. This son gets the, the inheritance, the money, and he goes off and li- spends it in wild living. And when, the, when there was a famine, when he ran out of money, this kid was in a distant land, and, and he realized what he had done and how far he was, and he came up with this plan, I'm going to go back to my dad, and he goes back to his dad. And this is what he says to his dad when he goes back to him. Father, I have sinned. He didn't say, I have made a mistake. Father, I'm not perfect. I haven't done everything perfect. He didn't go back and say that. He said, Father, I have sinned. He recognized the gravity of how his, what his actions had split their relationship. That he had a relationship that he was united with his father and his father, he said, was as good as dead to him in order for him to take the money from this estate and then go spend it in wild living. For him to be able to even return back to his community is just audacious because the whole community would have known about it in a small agrarian culture. For the father to have sold off land or or cattle or whatever to give him the the share of the estate and for him to have the money to be able to go off and spend it like that that everyone would have known about it, for him to have the audacity that he was in full recognition of how doomed he was, of how far he was in a relationship. And he comes back and said, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That there was a complete loss in the relationship, that there was no unity, that they were not reconciled in any way. And so there was a full recognition that he wasn't just a mistaker, he realized that he was a sinner. And without recognizing our sin, without being recognizing that we are sinners, Jesus is telling the story to help us to understand that we need to understand that we're sinners, that we are the prodigal son. We are the one who has wandered. But, 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 this is the way the father responds. But the father said to his servants, the servants just waiting there, wonder what the servants were thinking that he was gonna, he was gonna say. It was like, uh, let's kill him. Uh, I'm gonna beat him. We're all gonna stone him. I don't know what the, the servants would have thought that the father was gonna say, but he said something that no ordinary father would say. 
bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and bring a, bring a ring and put it on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Here the father does something that no ordinary father would do that they just throw a feast and a celebration and they call it, the whole community is gonna be there, all the servants are gonna be there, all the family's gonna be there. They're all gonna know this son was gone. He was dead, completely severed from a relationship, but he's back now. And what put the son in that light? Because the son worked his way back in, because the son had an awesome plan, because he walked a long way from the distant land that he was in? No, the reason why is because he understood his lostness that he, that he was completely doomed without a relationship with the Father. So the thing that I wanna tell you is that this is a picture of who God is for us. This is a picture of what happens when Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins and he rose again on the third day, that the name of Jesus, we can be saved, but it wasn't for mistakers. It wasn't for people who were like, I've made some mistakes in my life. It wasn't for some people who think that they could just auto-correct themselves for the rest of their lives and be religious people. It's for people who have recognized their lostness. That recognition of sin paves the way to restoration. This is the one thing that I want you guys to remember tonight. This is our bottom line from tonight. So if, you, if you've gotten lost and you've been checking the surf report or your email or tweeting or whatever you're doing, just stop for a second and just realize everything, if I lost you in my stories or I talk too fast, Check this out. Recognition of sin paves the way to restoration. That this is the one thing that I want you to walk away with. And I believe that you didn't need to come here tonight to know that, that you're not perfect. You didn't need to come here tonight to know that there's some things that you're really having trouble changing in your life, that high-paid therapists are having trouble changing in your life, and that your wife or your husband or your parents or your brothers and sisters or coworkers have told you you need to change over and over and over again. I didn't need to come here today to tell you that in reality, you should know that you're broken. I didn't even need to come here today probably to tell you that in order to have restoration, there has to be recognition. We all kind of knew this already. So this is an obvious thing that I'm just pointing out that Jesus teaches us, that recognition of sin paves the way to restoration. And the reason that's so important for us is because a lot of us, some of us have been in the church for a long time, and some of us get caught in ruts spiritually. We get caught in ruts, and we start going through the routines, and we start auto-correcting and thinking we could just, you know, go through a routine and be a Christian, and we could be like a Pharisee and legalistic but we really need to hit the restart button. We need to find the starting point of our faith. And part of that is recognizing our complete lostness and how doomed we are without Jesus Christ. That it's not about you performing the right number of things. It's not about you working hard enough because it's impossible without Jesus. It's not about just doing the right things. And for, for some people who are in here today, I believe that you're here for the first time and maybe you've been distant from God or distant from church or maybe you were a Christian when you were younger and, and some of the things that I've said tonight have, has resonated as true. It's like you believed when you were younger and your faith got eroded and you're here for the first time. And as you're here for the first time, hopefully this is a, a message that's very clear and helpful for you as you hear that all, all you need to do is begin to recognize your lostness without Jesus. And that hunger, thirst, and desire for him is what Jesus 
wants to see is your recognition of who you are before him. And so I have a little illustration here that I heard earlier uh, this week or last week, and I thought it was a great illustration. It's like, this is a tiling sponge. Anybody here do tile, set tile, floors, flooring? Okay, nobody, okay, I do. All right, so I set, I like set tile in college a little bit, and I've set a bunch of tile, and tiling sponges, uh, you know, they're interesting because they, they absorb a lot of water, you know, and, and you use them. And I could remember being taught by one of my bosses when I was setting floors and, you know, he would teach me how to wipe and keep it flat and then put it and rinse it. And he's like, you could do one wipe and one more wipe. And then he's like, and then rinse it out, you know, and he would teach me exactly how you wanted me to do it. And these tiling sponges hold quite a bit of water. It, it's pretty cool. I love these sponges. Now, what if I was to go down to the beach, which we all think about all the time, okay, and going down to the beach, and, uh, you know, being down there, skimming, nice warm day, we bring our tiling sponge, and I'm like, let's start to, like, mop up the ocean, okay? Let's start to, like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a little bit of water, I'm going to take it out, you know, and I'm going to take my tiling sponge and, and bring it over here, and you're like, uh, I wouldn't get very much, but what if we all got our tiling sponges and went down to the ocean, and we started, like, pulling some water out of the ocean with our tiling sponges? We wouldn't get very far, would we? No, we wouldn't get very far. That's like ridiculous thought. It wouldn't even make an impact. We could do it for like days, months. It's like the ocean would still be there. It's like we wouldn't even be doing anything. It's like I'm down there. I got my tiling sponge. That's not me. But let's just say it's me. I use my PowerPoint move right there. You like that? That was the power of Keynote right there. But let's say we all did that. It's like we wouldn't get anywhere. We wouldn't make any impact on the ocean. And it's the same way with Jesus Christ, that he is the only one who saves. His name is the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no other way to get to heaven. You can do all your best, do everything that you think you need to do in order to be saved, but we are not auto-correcting our way into heaven. What Jesus wants is a humble and contrite heart that recognizes their complete lostness because God loves doomed people. And the longer that we're Christians, the more propensity we have or the more likelihood we have is to draw near to being like a Pharisee and thinking we got it together and we're better than other people or we got this edge about us that says, you know, I'm prideful and I got it. I got the truth. I got the corner on it. But really it's God loves doomed people, people who recognize their need for him, that we're not just mistakers. We didn't just make some mistakes in our life, that I am a total sinner and what I did has separated me from a relationship with God. And without Jesus, there's no way to get back into it. So I want to ask you this question today. I gave my, my verdict on this by asking you that little question in the beginning. How many of us would have made a mistake? And you know, everyone would raise their hand. It's like, how many of us would have, you know, cons- you know, that were sinners? And most of us would be kind of reluctant to raise our hands when we said, hey, how many of us are sinners? So I want to ask you this question. Do you resist the idea that you are a sinner? If so, why do you resist that idea? Why is that, that word so difficult for you to, put, to grasp? Because it's so final. It's something that's like, there's no economic reason. There's no circumstance. It's like being a sinner is like, dude, I, I have sinned. And, you know, you're just taking full responsibility. There's no, other, there's no other reason. There's no other anything circumstantial about it. If you, if you do resist it, why? Why do you think you resist the idea that you're a sinner? And if not, why not? What would, what would keep you from resisting that because, you know, oftentimes there's two parties. You got the Pharisees and you got the people who are totally sinners. Like, hey, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And so maybe you need to talk about that. And what we have is we have small groups here in the church. And in our small groups, we want you guys to talk about these things. And on the back of the newsletter, there's some questions for you guys to ask in your small groups even this week. We have a prayer devotional on Friday night and you guys could talk about these things as you go to the prayer devotional and pray about these things. 
Uh, but if you resist the idea that you're a sinner, I want to encourage you also to get into a Bible study that maybe you need to get into a Bible study that's personal one-on-one about coming to faith, about what it means to become a member of this church, what it means to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And maybe you've been raised in a church, but we want to offer that to you. We have a simple Bible study series called The Core Four. And we want you guys to get into a Bible study with us. And so uh, what I want to leave you guys with is basically, let's not just leave here tonight being mistakers. Let's not leave here tonight thinking that, hey, we've made some mistakes in our life. But what we're gonna do is we're gonna have an opportunity right now to take communion. And as we take communion, we wanna go to God and really take responsibility and recognize the gravity of our sin and how it separated us from a relationship with God. It's actually impacted our relationships around us as well. And we need to take full responsibility for that. And so let's go to God right now. We're gonna pray for the communion. And then uh, we actually have a baptism, which is so encouraging. So people who have recognized their lostness and they're ready to get baptized, a girl named Erin in the campus ministry is gonna be getting baptized tonight. And so uh, before, before the baptism though, let's go ahead and go to God and, and spend some time just thinking about the sin that we've committed in our lives. Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity that we can look into your word and see the the grace that you offer us and how uh, you're just this amazing father who's ready to to kill the fattened calf as we come home. But Father, I pray that I can truly take responsibility and recognize the gravity of my sin and how it separated us from you. I know you don't want to condemn me, Father. That's not the reason. But you want me to recognize what I have done So, Father, we we need you. We were calling out for you here today, and we thank you for the name of Jesus Christ, and thank you that he is raised from the dead. We pray for our communion right now that we could remember the pain which he bore for our sins on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.